I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hello once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. Today, we are joined by the author Brantes Purnell. He has got a new book out. It's called 100 Boyfriends. It's out on the very prestigious Far Strauss and Giroux label. Brantes is joining us from the Bay Area. Welcome. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you? We're doing great. We're doing great. Uh, Brontes, before we get going, I wondered if you could talk a little bit. You've got a very uh, varied career. You make films. You have a dance company. You are the front man for a band. Am I correct you also were in Gravy Train? Because looking at you, I think I saw you at the Fireside Bowl in that band many years ago. Is that correct? Yes, you can tell by the gray hair that I was indeed in Gravy Train. Yes, that that does it. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your work and your practice out there for people who are not familiar with you? Because you you actually have a huge career uh, out in the Bay Area. Um, Well, I started as um, a musician. Um, I grew up in Alabama. And then around 2001, 2002, I moved to California just to kind of like play in bands. Um, but once I got out here, the scene was very varied. So I started going to school for dance. I was in um, these African and modern dance companies for about 10 years. And then, um, yeah, alongside music, I had always written zines since I was a teenager. So I started, um, yeah, I started writing. Um, and then just, you know, being in bands, making films for my music videos, I started, um, I don't know, doing films. I don't know how to answer that question because it was such a gradual step and it all kind of happened, you know, just dot, 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 dot in a row. But basically, um, it's hard being an artist, so I have to be able to do whatever gives me a paycheck, and I did it. And (laughs) um, eventually it just kind of worked out. So, Brontes, I wanted to ask you, um, in in your acknowledgments, you thank your mother, uh, Annie, for passing the gift of the pen, uh, was she a writer? Uh, was your was your mom a writer, or what was the gift? Well, my of mom the pen? was a second. My mom was a secretary, but she definitely was very, very, very into literature. Um, she was very into black literature, um, and she really instilled in me a love for Langston Hughes. Um, and also, I remember at night she had a big dream of like writing a book herself. So I remember her just being in bed at night, just scribbling in this notepad. Nothing ever became of that book. And I went back home to Alabama to find that book that she had wrote. And it's kind of like all these like faded words on this notepad from the late 80s. I can't make out any of it. But um, that is very vivid, her writing every night. So hmm, That's interesting. I actually grew up in a writing family as well. My mom's also a writer and she's an author. So um, I, I get that. This book is a really interesting collection. Um, you know, it's a series of, is it safe for me to call it vignettes that are um, perhaps or perhaps not based on your own life and your own interactions, uh, your love life, your music tour. Um, some of it feels like it is personal. Uh, some of it feels like it is fictional. One of the things I would take away from it, I think all three of us really enjoyed the book as well, was that it felt very raw. Um, some of the things that... Um, you, you talk about in the book loneliness, um, feeling a need to make connection, um, unhappiness. You mentioned, you know, you had to work for a paycheck as well, like, like many of us here. Those things are kind of the working class experience that 
too often in books really doesn't get talked about. Can you talk about why you kind of focused on that need and yearning for connection in your literature? Um, I don't know. I think just in general, just like in a lot of the books we read and a lot of the shows we watch, it's we live in a society that essentially hides the poor and beheads the prophets. And so, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I grew up in the era of a lot of working class dramas and depictions. And somewhere along the 90s, it became very uninteresting or gauche to talk about the lives of poor people or people that were struggling. And so, uh, this, I mean, I can make a strong argument for this or whatever. Um, but these were kind of, um, I don't know, I think these are the things that I was very much centered around, or this is the kind of drama that I grew up with. I do kind of like that sense of like a kitchen sink drama, something that generates around the home and has just like these kind of, I don't know, the, the residual and causal effects of kind of like a working class life, you know. Um, these are the things that are most interesting to me and the things that just, I don't know, felt the purest and the most true. So were you, I guess that just to follow on that, were, were you a fan of like the 1950s, uh, kitchen realist dramas? I'm thinking of Joe Orton, you know, in specifics, because some of the stuff that I was reading here kind of reminded me of that, um, angry young man writer era in Britain, uh, of the 1950s and 1960s, where they really started to focus on, the love and the relationships of working class people, which really, especially in England, had not been explored at that point of all. I didn't know if that was any of an influence on you at all, or um, I guess I didn't even know what kind of influences you had when you started writing this stuff. That was a very huge influence on me. Or like I was really into those movies in my twenties, like A Taste of Honey, Look Back in Anger, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner stuff like that and i was like oh this kind of reminds me of like rock or yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that show rock or mm -hmm. like roseanne when it first started like kind of like that kind of working class ennui you know so those were huge influences i'll say roseanne I, is more my language i, 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 I forgot about rock i love that show when i was a kid i don't even know what it was uh, you can't even have a show like that on tv these days really like everything yeah everything it, does kind of this I would, I would think you'd struggle yeah, like, to actually have The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. I think that would be a tough film to get made today. I don't know if you guys are familiar I, with I've that. I've read it, it's, but I, did, I didn't know there was a movie. And, yeah. I, and I've, I, I studied those. I forgot to look back in Anger Guy. That was a play originally. You're Joe Orton, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Richard Harris, yeah. Um, Brontez, there was a, a just, I love your writing, just throwing it out there early. Um, Mike and I were talking, and we we. We said it was like uh, Jesus' son smashes into some burrows, uh, the the cut up trilogy. You know, it was just, um, and uh, I got a, a great. I I love your writing, and one of the things I like about it is it just seems like, um, like Jamie said. I, I guess raw is a strange adjective, but there was just it, it. It just reminds me of real people and how real people talk and real people behave. Um, but there's a. a and, one of the things about our shows, we read all the books. We read them cover to cover. But there's a uh, one part that I really like. It's on uh, page 155, and it's from the chapter, Do They Exist If No One's Watching? And uh, I thought this was just great. It's, it's like my favorite saying, when God closes the door, he opens a window. But in this particular case, the window was on the fifth floor, and the house was on fire. And then you listen to a, a couple having an... Uh, awkward conversation and uh 
I love that. Like a lot of times when I go out, I can see people, you can tell they're like on a date and they've never met before. And I, I always, and then you talk about lurking, you know, which is, for me, it was a skateboarding term. It was like the folks that came and watched the skaters but didn't skate. But I, I that lurking uh, passage and just listening, I, oh, I always do that too. And I, I felt like there was, you know, I'm not an artist from the Bay Area, but I, I, there was a lot of things I could really relate to. And I, I think it was just because you do write about real people and what people do. And it's, I don't know, for me, it was very refreshing. Well, part of it for me was, um, it was like the, the tone that I got throughout was like, I, I'm exhausted of keeping all this stuff in. And I'm just going to, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say everything that's on my mind, everything that's happened. You know, and there, these are different narrators, different characters, but there's there's no holding back. And I think there's a cool illusion going on. Like, like I don't know, maybe you didn't edit it at all, Brantes, but it, it it seems like everything was just first draft, boom. Um, and there's th that's what was refreshing about it to me. Did did you did you edit it all, or was it straight off the cuff? No, um, I I definitely I think about what I say, um, but I just think. Um, Kind of like in today's times or whatever, like, I don't know, everyone's thoughts are so, we're so privy to everyone's thoughts, you know what I mean? Just everyone's so very like, this is how I feel and I'm going to declare it, like, <laughs> kind of like in this public realm of, like, Facebook. But I think with writing, there's something that's more sacred that's happening, what you're being privy or have the luxury of observing it's someone's like for real private inner landscape, you know, that isn't like, you know, some of it's prophetic, but I don't know. Some of it's kind of glitchy. Some of it's kind of vulnerable. But well, that's what I was thinking of the vulnerability and the self-deprecation things that, and that's what I mean by the exhaustion and, and just, and just getting a kind of burden, uh, unloading a kind of burden because a lot of the stuff is the interesting characters to me were the ones who would make speculative op observations about, other characters and then they would turn out to be wrong and they would own up to being wrong about these other characters and that that was another part of the refreshingness you know is like in the in the um i don't know i'm not really on social media but it seems like the gist of social media is is everybody's right and nobody's actually talking to each other <laughs> but uh you know your 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 characters weren't they could get like that but but they i don't know there was a there was a 360 perception to them that I that I like well there was an immediacy I, I would say and I think that like many of the characters and I, I understand what you're saying one of the reasons the book really resonated with me because I, I think that you came off one of the things that's really difficult to do is craft a book that has that kind of um, compelling forward momentum in the narrative that seems very effortless but is actually something that is really practiced and skilled I, I think that in a lot of places you didn't place, you, you didn't use any extraneous words. Everything was right. very yeah, straightforward. Almost what I'm kind of used to in like a hard-boiled crime novel, and I mean that as a, a compliment. Um, but when you were exploring the characters, I think what Mike's talking to, about is a lot of people in your stories had the freedom to be wrong, to be vulnerable, yeah. and to then you know, examine why they were right or why they were wrong in a way that you don't often necessarily see in fiction, where sometimes authors um, want to have their characters always be a certain way. Um, 
because they think that's how things should be. And I don't necessarily find that that interesting. I think when characters are allowed to grow and do their own thing and the author is in a little way more of a ventriloquist for them, I, I think that leads to some more interesting writing. And I, I felt that you actually captured that. Um, I don't think, you know, when Mike was saying, you know, did you edit? I don't think that really meant, yeah, you know, no, it's not no, tossed no, off. No, but no, I think no. when, when we were reading it, all of us were very struck by the fact that it was such a propulsive book and a quick book um, that it seemed almost effortless, which is the mark of a yeah. really well-crafted, very tight collection. Thank you, Jamie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, I mean, I spent a lot of time in college <laughs> on a theater degree. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is kind of like, you know, I say it all the time. I do think that there's like kind of like a theater IQ. or I do think in terms of a play when I'm writing. I think that's an interesting thing. Do you think also about like blocking and movement about how you would look at how the characters walk and, and move and talk as well? Oh, no, for sure. There's always, you know, when I first started writing, like there's my first book, Johnny, Would You Love Me If My Bleep Were Bigger? And um, since I laid my burden down, a big thing was before I would ever commit anything to the page, I should, I ha would have to be able to recite it in my head. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do that so much with 100 boyfriends, but um, I think it probably is like some kind of like southern baptist preacher iq too also of like hmm. preparing the sermon before you like spew it out like there has to be some type of structure where where the words are architecture and they have to like have a certain type of flow and feel and uh, feel angular before i deliver them to people hmm. I, the, uh, I also think that there's a lot of things and that resonated with me in your writing too. There was a, uh, in the, uh, on the tour diary, there was a thing where there was an article about you and someone said, uh, the Rouge King of California garage rock. And, uh, and then you were just like, yeah, I hope I get laid out of this. And I, you know, that's for me, like when, when I played in bands, Jamie played in bands as well, punk bands back in the nineties and eighties. And, you know, that would be the first thing that would probably pop into my head too. Like when I was, you know, a younger guy and like, oh, okay, I'm in this, you know, I'm at, there's an article about me. Well, maybe I can use this advantage, you know. And, that was the only thing that popped into my head yeah. the only time we got press. I don't know about you guys. But, yeah, you know. and there's, there's a, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to say things like that. Um, I think there was there was another thing too, and I believe it was in the tour, uh, tour diary as well, I think in France where there was a guy that I believe had a Confederate flag and in France, which is bizarre, but it was just kind of like an oh well moment. Um, why you know why does this? And you didn't go into why he would have it or anything. Well, it's, like that. it's addressed directly. I don't know if it's in that story, but it's just kind of the ridiculousness about going on moral campaigns for things like that. Um, and and I appreciated that observation for sure. And I think a lot of people are afraid to write stuff like that these days because they don't want to be looked at as you know not woke or something. If that makes sense. No, yeah, I, it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard, because it's such a dog and pony show, and to be honest, I'm never really afraid of writing anything, honestly, because in a time where basically everyone's outraged about everything, what can you not get away with? Well, it, it works the two ways, you know, honestly. But I think, I think it's not just about getting away with it, it's, it's, 
it's catching people's eyes. You know, like everything is so is is made to be so eye catching that nothing is eye catching. And what was interesting about this stuff is is yes, there there's there's for lack of a better word, vulgarity. Uh, there's there's profanity all throughout the book, but it's not. It didn't. It never felt like for the sake of shock value. It 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 was just yeah. that was just the scene we're in, and the real story is everything that's going on around. I have a good example, but which I thought was absolutely hilarious, and it's all caps. I'm having a fantasy about painting a different gender on my HIV counselor, and having them sexually assault me, and uh. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I just, that cracked me up. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of things. And it's like, I don't know if I'm weird or what, but like, you know, I, I think about crazy stuff all the time. And then like, if I put it down on paper, people would be like, what's wrong with this guy? You yeah. know? And, but there, the beauty of this and, uh, you know, there was a couple things, the humor, uh, that, you know, passages like that. But also there was like this real, like we were talking about vulnerability when you're talking about going to get your dad's jackets, and he's, you know, and when I read that, that really resonated with me too. It's like it was just so human. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this. I, I guess I'm just pointing out some things that uh, really well, stood out for me. Actually, speaking of that, and that's from a story called Inherited Winter Coat. This is a good point to stop and actually hear some of Brontez's work. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. And this week, music is provided by Jamie Branch and Anteloper, courtesy of the International Anthem Recording Company. As always, we want to remind people that while we do not censor here on I-94, the FCC does make it so that we cannot say certain words on the air. As a result, we have had to expurge a couple of words that Brontes uses. If you want to see the full thing, please do check this book out of the library. And we're going to be right back. We're talking with Brontes Purcell, the author of 100 Boyfriends. We're going to be back after this short excerpt from his book. My father had a bunker on my grandma's land in southern Alabama. A collection of modern era vintage winter coats and a collection of antique rifles, one with the name Jody engraved on it. The name of my great-great-grandfather. We were going to go to my grandma's land, pick up the coats and rifles, go down to New Orleans for two days, and come back up to Loverboy's house in Tennessee. I would fly back to California from there. I figured if we were smuggling guns across that many state lines, I should let a white boy drive. They're good like that. I remembered my father. He was an OG. His coat collection was one of his private achievements. Even I, as his only son, could not outrank it. I asked once when I was a boy, Daidi, as I pronounced his name, can I have your coat? He was wearing his tan and green houndstooth number with wooden buttons and a large collar on it. It was long, almost to his knees. His older brother had been a mod and played in soul bands in the 70s. He had stolen his style from him. You can't fit in Dad's coat yet, son. You can have it when I die. I couldn't have been more than eight when he said it. He said it in a way where I knew he never intended to die. I thought about this memory as we pulled into a rest stop off the highway and I almost cried but caught myself. Hey baby, can we stop at Popeye's? Yes sir, said my handsome driver. I had done this drive to my grandma's all through my youth. My father would drive for hours north to get me from Christmas and summer break and I would sit and follow the roadway markers with my eyes and just feel content. Loverboy and I stopped in Birmingham where we found a Popeye's and another hour and a half south we found ourselves close. The way to my grandma's was the same as I remembered. It was all Gulf Coastal Plains, Spanish moss, two-lane highways, dirt roads, and Reconstruction-era decay. Everything, even the sparse houses that were obviously lived in, all seemed eerily vacant. I was vacant. 
My grandmother was from G's Bend. At some point in history, a bunch of super scared white people burned a ferry so black people couldn't travel to vote there. This is as much as I remembered of what my family had told me. My boyfriend was white, and he was probably, besides insurance salesmen, one of only a dozen or so white men who had set foot in this stretch of land in 20 years. There were so many abandoned churches. We parked and explored one a mile before my grandma's house. It was dilapidated. I remember my father driving me to my grandma's house on the dirt roads of Wilcox County, where there were always cars parked on Sundays. We went in. The pews were stripped bare. There was mold everywhere, holes in the floor, wood planks strewn about the floor, and holes in the ceiling. How had it disintegrated so fast? It had been nine years since I last saw it. It seemed like it was too fast for something like that to just all but disappear. My mother had explained to me that buildings needed human breath in them to keep them moist and held together. Abandoned buildings are like abandoned people. They die sooner. And that was a selection from the book 100 Boyfriends from Brontes Purnell. It's out now on Farr, Strauss, and Giroux. And before the break, we were actually talking about the story you just heard that was Inherited Winter Coat. Um, this one actually really resonated with me, and I think with Jeremy as well, because before the break, we were talking about, you know, the idea of vulnerability. And I think one of the things that men don't talk about a lot is their relationship with their fathers and their relationship with their parents. And the kind of totems we build up to talk about that, I thought it was a really interesting thing that you were talking about going back and getting this one object that meant so much to you as a young man that it, it stuck with you through your entire life. And when your father passed on, this was the thing you needed to have so that you could remember him. And so much was wrapped up in it. Was this based on a true story or was this completely invented? Could you talk a little bit about that? Um. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, both my fathers passed away, my stepfather and my father, a couple of years ago. And um, it is kind of like in going and cleaning out their apartment, it is kind of weird, like when you're confronted with the archive of a person who's passed away. Um, you know, there was never just one object per se, but, you know, just this room full of objects where you're like, what gets preserved to history? What gets thrown away? And also just living an artist's lifestyle. My lifestyle is so not set. What can I actually preserve, you know, and keep with me for the rest of life that wouldn't get lost or something? So it's more just about, you know, the idea of, you know, objects and memories just being kind of a charged thing, you know. And the, the, the story. They, over, oh, my fault. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um the story opens up, the first line is, uh, my father killed a man once. It was an accident. And, you know, reading that, I think, you know, I'm thinking I'm gonna, we're going to go into this wild story about some murder or something. And then it just, it turns out it was an accident at work. And, and then you go into this vulnerability. And I, uh, I, I agree with what Jamie said. You know, it's hard. For, I mean, it, it I'm not going to say for men, but I'm going to say for me, it's hard to talk about my father. It's hard to write about my father. Um, and uh, uh, I just, I don't know. I, again, the story really resonated with me. Did <laughs> If while we're on a story, he's, he's, the narrator is making a trip with a, with a boyfriend. And uh, one of the themes that kept coming up throughout the stories is Yes, the loneliness, the vulnerability, but like there, it's like these attempts to connect, but the the 
the two characters can't connect for, for a lot of different reasons, whether it's different socioeconomic backgrounds, different uh, just where, where they're at in yeah. their headspace. Like um, one guy is $80,000 in his checking account, yeah. which, which was yeah, great. Yeah, or one guy is way older than the other guy, or one guy has different motives than well, the other guy. Well, he also forgets the, – the narrator forgets his name. After yeah, the, yeah, yeah, and then they're taking photographs, and he, the narrator remembers like the description of the camera. It was like a '60s camera distinctly, and then he's like, "Is it Trevor? Trevor? Is that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah." And uh, you know, it's it's I don't know. It's just this cool, weird mix that's that's simultaneously funny, um, kind of dreadfully sad and and also um you know there's there's a depth to it that that makes you think and um i like i like that story we we uh we actually just experienced that feeling i know what you're talking about brontes my my girlfriend and Alyssa and i and our daughter went out to california to go through some of her dad's things who just passed away and um you know it's like uh you deal with this kind of there, there is the supercharged stuff that's obvious that you keep, but there's also the stuff that if you don't keep that, uh, do you feel guilty about that? Are you throwing this person away? You know that that kind of feeling. Did you have that with your father, or your stepfather? No, I, I, yeah, I have that with my father, my stepfather, roommates that have passed away, people that have moved on, people that have left things in my life. Like you know, there is. Um, I do think that there's kind of a sense of archive in the book um just um yeah like how how is memory metabolized that's and interesting because you you split up some of the stories can you can you talk about some of the stories that are continuations of each other but not um consecutive in the book well okay so i was mostly thinking about temporality or whatever or the idea of kind of I don't know, one body being split amongst a hundred different perspectives, kind of like a kaleidoscope or something. Or like, do you know those like um, those video games where like you can shift the perspective of how the character is viewing or how yeah. you are viewing the character? Nintendo sometimes? 64 used to do that with the, with the Mario game. I, don't know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like sometimes the camera shows you like moving forward. You see the back of the character. Sometimes you see the character head on. Yeah. Sometimes you become the eyes of the character, you know. So I always like kind of love playing with things like that because definitely whenever I write in first person, I'm, I always view first person as this kind of magic trick where you use the term I so that the reader becomes I. The reader sits directly in the character and becomes kind of inherits the character themselves. You take on the skin of the person in the story. Because after you read I about five times, you literally become I. It becomes you. Hmm. That's interesting. And I, I liked actually the video game reference. I was actually just thinking of Crash Bandicoot. I always liked how he danced up and down while you waited to move him. And I always thought like, when, whenever I was playing that game, I wondered what would happen if I just walked away and left him dancing there, whether he would do things on his own or whether, you know, he was stuck <laughs> forever just waiting for, you know, help to do something. 
That's an interesting point. We're speaking with uh, Brontes Purnell. He is the author of 100 Boyfriends. We do need to take a break real quick to pause for station identification and remind folks of the folks who have made this station possible. We'll be right back after another selection from his book. Again, it's out on Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux right now. And then we're going to be continuing our conversation with him right here on I-94. This spring on I-94, Jeff Cohen, David Camp, Kevin Matson, Max Basora, Julia Sanchez, Chelsea Summers, Suleimana Doña, Fariha Lawson, Brontes Purnell, William Hazelgrove, and many, many more. Only on Lumpin's Books and Literature show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Mickey's father was all about big entrances. You could feel the charisma of him six feet before he arrived. He said a quick hi to his parents, who didn't even look up from the screen to acknowledge their son. Mickey followed his dad to the bedroom they shared in the back of the house. Mickey loved his dad. It was mostly his smell, a mix of alcohol, pork cracklings, and cheap cologne. He would sit in his dad's lap when he would play dominoes with the men at the pool hall in town and lean his head against his dad's chest just so he could smell him. It was a very peaceful smell. Mickey sat on the bed and watched his dad's nighttime pre-party ritual, which happened most nights of the week. He would dash out of the shower, toss on cologne and deodorant and hair grease. After this, he would always proceed to spray a grotesque amount of starch on his Levi's 501s and iron them till they were stiff as a board. His father sometimes called him Mouse, because his name was Mickey. Yeah, Mouse, I'ma find you a pretty stepmama tonight. Look at the crease in these pants. You could cut yourself on them. None of these stepmothers ever materialized, but either way, Mickey loved watching his father's nightly beauty rituals. He was less like a dad and more like an older brother. It worked. His father threw on a pair of pristinely white Converse and a green Izod polo, grabbed the keys to his 76 Volkswagen Beetle, and hit the door. See you when I get home, Mouse. Stay up and wait for me, okay? Okay, Papa, said Mickey. His father picked him up off the bed and hugged him tight and kissed him on the forehead. He sat him down and was off. Mickey always wanted to tell his dad about Cortez, but always kept the matter close to himself. For one, he didn't want his father bear thinking he was a punk, and two, he knew that any kid who snitched on another kid was a dead kid. If he got Cortez in trouble, we would have to fight Cortez and all his scary-ass cousins for the rest of his life. It was all very lose-lose. Mickey's grandparents had gone to sleep and he pulled out two VHS tapes from a pile by the TV. One was a bootleg copy of an hour of BET videos and the other was also a bootleg copy of his favorite movie, Flashdance. He put on the BET tape and rewound it to his favorite spot, the Janet Jackson Pleasure Principle video. What wasn't to love about Janet Jackson? She had it all. She had bangs, she drank water out of a bottle, this baffled Mickey, and she was a dancer who lived in a warehouse. Was this a thing? He cross-referenced it with Alex, the protagonist stripper performance artist in Flashdance, who also more than likely drank water out of a bottle, but most definitely was a dancer who lived in a warehouse. All the evidence was clear. All the coolest people were dancers who lived in warehouses. He was on the fence about the bottled water part. As always, Mickey alternated the tapes and practiced the routines until 2.30 a.m. when his dad got home, and Mickey would curl up beside him and hear all about the gossip at the club. The next morning, Mickey missed the school bus. He and his dad were up talking too late. His father called in sick to work and took Mickey to breakfast and dropped him off at school 10 minutes after the morning tardy bell had rung. 
He was late with a stomach full of Hardy's biscuits and strawberry jam. He felt satiated. He stepped into Miss Dickerson's class and spied the new boy. He and Mickey were wearing the same sleeveless gray Thundercats t-shirt with a full print of Lion O, the team leader, on the front and the red and black Thundercats emblem on the back. In Mickey's head, immediate friendship seemed like the next step. My mom goes to Dollar General too, exclaimed Ed, Mickey's new immediate best friend. He had this feeling in his stomach now, the same as when Cortez would bother him, only much more violent, yet sweet too, like three packets of Pop Rocks fizzing in his stomach all at once. Ed was from Texas, Mexico before that. He was dark but not like Mickey. He was more medium brown like a cinnamon color as opposed to Mickey's indigo. He had an accent that Mickey had only ever heard on TV before. He had a rat tail and his bangs almost covered his eyes. Ed's father and mother both went to Athens State University, the college in the next town over. They were finishing agricultural degrees. Ed had no brothers or sisters. Both boys agreed that they wished they had Chitara t-shirts, the female psychic feline warrior from Thundercats. They also both agreed that they should share crayons all day. After school, Mickey sat sweating on the bus. Ed was right next to him. Ed's parents had moved into the renovated old post office in the center of town. This was along Mickey's route. Mickey had focused on Ed so entirely that he hadn't noticed that Gortez wasn't riding the bus that day. The windows were all down on the bus and Mickey could waft Ed's smell, dial soap and sweat. It had a sweet smell to it, different from his dad's, but still a peaceful smell. I never talked to a black person, said Ed, which he punctuated by putting his arm around Mickey's shoulder. Ed smiled big and removed his arm and they both sat close, elbow touching elbow, side by side. They both watched the cotton in full bloom as the bus raced through the fields. The bus let Ed off and Mickey waved goodbye to him and then it hit. Cortez was nowhere to bother him. He breathed a sigh of release and sank back into his seat. He almost wished Cortez could have been there to see his new friend Ed. He even fantasized about him and Ed beating Cortez up. Mickey went straight to the room he shared with his dad. He wrote Ed's name on the wall in pencil and erased it over and over again. The next day at school, Ed didn't show up and neither did Cortez. Both boys missed the next day and the one after that. Miss Dickerson explained to Mickey that Ed's parents had found a more suitable housing near campus and he would start attending the elementary school in the town in the next county over. He then heard from his grandmother that Cortez's uncle and cousin had been arrested and he was in New Orleans with his mom again. It was the end of the school year, so none of it really mattered. There was a new feeling in Mickey's stomach now. It felt like the bottom was falling out of it. Later that day on the school bus, with neither predator to probe him nor a friend by his side, Mickey let out a big sigh as the bus stopped to drop the other kids off. He was bored. Hey everybody, welcome back to I-94. Once again, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And Mr. Michael Sachs. Hey. And you just heard a selection from the brand new book, 100 Boyfriends. Brontes Purnell is the author. It is out now on FSG, and he joins us from the Bay Area. We heard a selection, uh, actually a little bit later in the book, uh, a story about a child that is being bullied at school. Uh, but then both his bully and the friend he makes at school suddenly and mysteriously disappear. Um, and they disappear for, unfortunately, very, um, I don't want to say banal reasons, but very understandable reasons these days uh, in people that are, are struggling with uh, poverty and other issues that come with that. Um, that was a very affecting passage for me, and I, I wondered if you could speak to it a little bit because uh, I thought you eloquently summed up um, you know, a child who is feeling kind of out of place at school, but is also being bullied for how he looks, for his sexuality, or possibly what his sexuality might be, but also how he finds uh, love and hope in his father, 
who he uh, stays up too late with, uh, hearing about his nights out at the club and, and then staggers in after the tardy bell after eating Hardee's. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that was one of the, uh, the stories really that for me stuck out. It was one of the standout ones in the book. Well, basically, um, the culture of childhood has really changed. And um, Ed's name written in pencil is very particularly about like kind of a rural 80s childhood where, you know, you know, sometimes I think back to the 80s and something about the 80s feels more like the 60s than anything close to now, because I don't know, it's just um, it was still just still very like felt like a raw time or that last era before, I don't know, language became available to our families and everything. And I don't know, people talk so much about, I don't know, trauma and event and just um, like trauma and event and just like the, I don't know, even talking to my nephew, my nephew is 12 years old, the language he uses around how his parents should or should not talk to him, we would have never, we didn't have anything like that. And so I remember too, just being of an age where if you were getting fucked with at school, you didn't dare come home and tell your parents because your parents would be like, why didn't you beat that kid's ass? Or, you know, you were very much, it was, you were very much still kind of in charge of your destiny, or maybe even we took on the responsibility of adults way too early. So I think it was um, nice to kind of write about or encapsulating kind of like that era or like kind of that last era where childhood felt so scary and wide open, you know, I look at also my nephew, my nephew's never been more than 20 minutes outside of adult supervision in his life. Hmm. Whereas I feel like we were, I mean, I was probably a really in that really strong tradition of latchkey kids where like, we would just roam the neighborhood for hours, you know, a nation of kids. Just, I remember walking the streets and the oldest amongst us being 12 and this just happening for hours, you know? And so the things in our childhood, um, I think it's, it's very particular when you're kind of, I don't know, when you're raised, when you have this kind of feral childhood. And I wanted to talk about that kind of last strong era of like, when it felt more socially acceptable to have that type of childhood or when it sat a lot more unquestioned than it does now. Yeah. I was a teenager in the eighties. I think we were like, and coming up at that time, it was like the last generation of kids that were unsupervised. And I had, Brontes, I had a very similar situation as you. And then like when I got into high school, I got into punk rock and, you know, I was going to shows in Detroit. My parents didn't know where we were and we come home in the middle of the night and like, you know, and, you know, I have friends with kids now, and it's like they don't even let them in the yard by themselves. You know, and, and I think you when you there's a you have a, a certain kind of toughness. Um, you know, I got bullied when I was young, and I got beat up, and like certainly didn't enjoy it. But then, like now, I have a lot of empathy for people that are bullied, and I can see it from the you know the other side. And uh, I think that 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 you know that a lot is lost. And like learning stuff on your own and not having everything, you know, spoon fed to you. Yeah, I was I, that that I think was one of the reasons. And I think, Brontes, you hit it on the, the nail on the head for me, because I, I felt that that really summoned up kind of the era when you were riding around on your green machine or your BMX or whatever. And, you you know, you'd go to the dollar store to get some candy or buy a comic book. And it was a time when you still had freedom, but you didn't have 
the freedom of adulthood in a weird way because when you're an adult freedom you, but not safety you know, right like, well when you're an adult you know every every kid you know oh i can't wait to grow up and the realization is that yeah you have certain freedoms as an adult but you also have a lot more responsibilities and the things that you as a child kind of idealized are not actually the things that you get as an adult um and i think that goes back to like the whole main arc of your book which struck me very much again you know we talked about this in the beginning as a wanting for connection, vulnerability, but also, you know, this idea that um, you need to find partners in the world to, in a sense, take yourself out of your daily routine. So much of our daily routine is dehumanizing. And I think you talk about that very eloquently when you're working at a nonprofit. Um, I also work at <laughs> a nonprofit, and I, I felt there were some certain similarities between that nonprofit and the one I work at. Uh, I thought that a lot of that and behavior that I think many people um, specifically in the religious world can, would consider marginal is actually a desire to rebel against these roles that were put in that feel very useless and feel very frustrating and only there to take up space and waste time. Whereas what life really is about is trying to find other people to share that life with. That. I agree with you 100%. Well said, homie. Like, word, word, <laughs> as they say. Um, speaking of connection, and, you know, I've been talking about the humor in the book, and that <laughs> that nonprofit, uh, you know, the masturbation at the at the beginning, and that was, I mean, I was dying laughing. But the other story, the one that I thought, you know, I, I marked all these. I love finding humor in literature, but was Hooker Boys Part 2. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, when you when, when the, the narrator was in uh, visiting his grandmother in Alabama and ended up uh, uh, having an interaction with a online uh, salesman of sex and <laughs> <laughs> an online purveyor of certain goods and services uh, and offering an eighty or ninety and, and thinking that was the time frame and then um, you know. But there was also like a pretty dark, sinister underlying thing. The guy had his kids there, and you know, you were like, the narrator was like, "Well, I'm going to give this guy twenty bucks because hopefully five bucks will go to these kids." You know, and and although it was hilarious, it was also like, "Oh, you know that, you know these kids don't have it. Probably don't have a chance with this situation." And um, well, they were going off to boxing, which I thought was a wonderful detail. You know, I remember that. I was like, yeah, the, kid, the kids are going to go boxing and then we can have our sexual encounter. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's the big thing here. That's, that's what we're taking away from this. You, you've got track marks all over you and possibly gangrene, but the important thing is the kids are going boxing. And there's a scene where you, in that, at the, towards the end of the story where you, you said you go to the gas station, you're going to, or the narrator, excuse me, is going to scream like a white woman, and then you're like, well, there might be a misfire there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know that I, I, I don't think a lot of the humorous writing that happens nowadays I, that I read is not you know just real life stuff. It's just like, it's like people trying to be funny, and um, I imagine that you're a pretty funny guy in real life just based on your writing. And I, I don't know that it's it's hard to do. It's hard to write life stories or realistic fiction and be funny without trying too hard. And I, again, I, I think I, I, uh, you nailed it on the head. And if I sound like a fanboy, I am. I, I love this book. Uh, we read a lot of books on the show. 
And uh, it was something that really relate, was relatable and resonated with me. And I, I keep saying that, but I, I, to our listeners, I can't say it enough. Um, this, is a, this is a phenomenally written book, and I can't wait to see what else you have coming down the pipeline. Can we talk a little bit about that for a second? Can we talk about humor? Because humor is one of the hardest things to write. I mean, I don't think it's any accident that this book is is funny and it gets funny from all kinds of dark places. Can you talk a little bit about that process uh, and talk about what it takes to find humor in some situations that are on the surface fairly grim? Well, I think that like anything, like humor, humor is generated from deep tragedy or like it's totally like a balance. And I've always said it, like if you ever notice like how most of the major comedians always kind of go crazy publicly, like Kimison, Chappelle, Barr, like all of the most major humorists in the world are like, you know, they have like these crazy public breakdowns. But I also think that... um, I think we as humans are always trying to achieve kind of a balance. Um, And there's no way to be thrust down into like a super dark situation. And, you know, even, I don't know, maybe as a mode of survival or just a, maybe a mode of actually witnessing in a three to 360 degree way, like how futile and how insurmountable and actually how hilarious the human condition is. You know, there's that saying we joke to cope, but um, I think, you know, kind of like a humor IQ is how we, I don't know, metabolize like a lot of these things, you know, I can sit at a comedy club and just get super sad sometimes, you know, I can chuckle at a funeral. I can do all these kind of counterintuitive things in any situation I mean, because I don't know, I think everything is like books, kind of like plays, kind of like everything is supposed to run these zodiac of feelings in order to have a good balance. I'm supposed to be bored by some of it. I'm supposed to be sad by some of it. I'm supposed to laugh at some of it. Some of it should fall completely off cliff. And then there should be catharsis. So I think it's actually like this kind of this well course meal that's supposed to be happening. Yeah, Mike and I are both in a recovery program, and, and you know, joke to cope is a huge part of Same. it. Same. And uh, when people, uh, when people, a lot of people, when they're new to this particular program, they'll, you know, they're shocked at like what we laugh at, you know, because someone will tell this horrendous story, and everyone's just like, oh, you know, and it's like that's how, and we can all relate, you know, and I, I think there was a lot of relatable stuff in here. Yeah, you know, now that you're talking about it, a lot of the stories. Uh, pardon the pun, Brontes, but a lot of these stories are about hitting bottom, and you know th- these moments of, uh, <laughs> of <I> just, <laughs> just got that. Uh, there, there, there are moments of grace. You know, we've been talking a lot about loneliness and, and not connecting, but there are these tiny little moments. And it's not of depressing. Grace, no, yeah. where you know, like, no, the character didn't find the love of their life, and no, they're not happily to ever after together but they walk away from the situation at the end of the story and say hey for that one moment i felt absolutely centered in that piece and then that's it that's the story and um that felt true to me that's all no yeah i think well i don't know like i I do just like those perspective shifts and there's been several times in my life where i've been to a place where there was no place to look but up you know Mm -hmm. And just, oh God, just um, 
being so thankful that you know I finally thought to look up. You know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, like I did. You know, sometimes you like you'll be. You never know that looking up is even an option. And when you figure out that that is an option, and the moment it hits you, God, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Like when you have that first real perspective change. And so I don't know. I do kind of always. Um, I do I think that that's something that I carry into, um, I don't know, story weaving or storytelling or whatever. Because it's like, gosh, like if you've never had that moment in your life, how the f*** you explain it to other people? I try my best, but I think I fail often. Right. Today we've been speaking with Brontes Purnell. His new book is 100 Boyfriends. It's out from Farrah Strauss and Jerome. Before we let you go, Brontes, and again, thanks so much for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Could this you tell awesome. us a little bit about what's coming up next for you? I mean, obviously this book is out as a paperback. You've got your band. What else is on the uh, cusp for you guys? Um, I'm writing a new sci-fi novel, and it's about this family of black psychics in the rural south in the 1960s and they're at war with each other and it's called the body writes a book hmm, okay have you read nk jesmond's stuff that she's doing for uh, green lantern because it reminds me a little bit of that it's kind of cool no i haven't i was like a huge comic book nerd but honestly i never continued with it much after 1998 yeah uh, well that's a good era to drop it off when george perez started drawing but she's doing far sector now for dc comics and it's very interesting it's it's uh Something you might want to, after you read your book, to after you write your book, to go back and check it out. I would love to. That sounds amazing. We'd like to have you back for that book, yes. too. So yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch. Absolutely. So we've been speaking with Brontes. Again, he's joining us from the Bay Area. 100 Boyfriends. It's out from Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. That's a really good house. It is available at good bookstores and good libraries everywhere. As always here on I-94, we also give the author the last word. So we're going to be closing with a final excerpt from this book. And we will see you again next week right here on I-94. Thanks, Brontes. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Brontes. Thank y'all so much. I sat there in the CVS magazine aisle, shaking and crying, feeling overwhelmed and a bit beside myself. It was as if the entire Earth simultaneously stood still and switched magnetic poles. Normally, I only go to CVS to buy lube and taquitos, but today was a bit more ceremonious. Before me, I was witnessing the impossible, my band was on the cover of Rolling Stone. The article had gone as far as to declare me the Rouge King of California Garage Rock. I, like, gagged. The illuminated neon fluorescent thought bubble above my head was flashing between the Rouge King of California Garage Rock? OMG, girl, like, that's me. And also, I hope this gets me laid. I walked home with the magazine in hand and stared at my face again on the cover. I thought about time, placement, and lineage. My very existence in the rock matrix felt something like the past, present, and future all colliding at once. I thought about the day Robert Johnson sold his soul to Satan and the subsequent birth of rock and roll. Did Father Johnson have any clue how many times and how many waves of blues music would be repackaged and sold to the world over and over and over again? For certain, no, but here I was. I was quite possibly the last black man playing R&B-influenced rock music. I had been to a black rock festival last summer where the money blacks mutually congratulated one another for their obsession with anime and all the bands sounded like 90s death metal. No one really, like, what? As if that weren't all alienating enough, I sat in mute horror as they didn't book my band for yet another year and instead hired a full-blown Caucasian SoundCloud rapper who, in the middle of his set, yelled, My great-great-great-grandmother was supposedly half-black and I want to dedicate this performance to our collective struggle as stolen African peoples. 
and everyone collectively raised their fists. I immediately left the festival and was ready to admit that these were so literally not my crew. In a world where white rappers were winning and I was decidedly not, I did the only thing a person in my situation can do in America. I screwed a white dude to get ahead. Carl Mitchens had been the seminal underground rock boy genius back in the 80s and 90s, and now he signed bands to his uber-hip indie rock label and pipelined them to mid-level commercial success. He was also a known closeted bisexual with a fetish for bottoms who dressed like 70s disco divas. He informed me that his hippie-ass wife and three kids were in Tibet for some invasively white religious celebration thing, and I almost barfed, but I also seized the opportunity. I dressed up like Donna Summer in the Bad Girls video, complete with silk stockings and garters and a bob wig, and let him screw me on his kitchen table. Post-coitus, I slipped him my band's demo tape, and six months later we had a magazine cover and a European tour. Now, if this had been the 90s, a Rolling Stone cover would have meant that you could at the very least buy a house in Los Angeles. These days it meant that you could go to Europe. Americans didn't go to rock shows anymore. Come home broke, but not starve to death on tour. It seemed like a fair enough trade. My band accepted the challenge. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Brontes Purcell, author of 100 Boyfriends, out now from Farrow, Strauss, and Giroux. The episode originally aired on April 15, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.